Hey, my name is David Dylan Thomas. Welcome once again to another episode of the Cognitive Bias Podcast. Um, so last time we talked about uh, the uh, actor-observer effect, and it was a lot about how we see the world, you know, one way. And thinking about ourselves and differently when thinking about other people. Today we're going to talk about the egocentric bias, which is kind of a variation on that, which is I sort of assume everybody has the exact same opinions I do, right? Or I assume that I kind of have a bigger outsized effect than I actually do. Uh, one of the ways you see this play out is in uh, group tasks. So let's say you have to collaborate on a team on a project. Let's say it's like one of those like things you sometimes get at workshops where it's like, hey, here's a bunch of uh, pasta noodles. And then you have to take that and some duct tape and build the biggest tower you can right it's like a common workshoppy conference thing where you like uh you know get to know you activity um if you were to like sort of test people after and be like okay so how much did you contribute to the you know success or failure of that project people will always assume they contributed more than they actually did and in fact they'll do this with collaborative tasks and they'll ask people afterwards okay what percent of the outcome was on you like how much did you contribute and Almost everyone will give an answer above 50%. And so when you add up all the percentages, you always get something that's higher than 100%. So obviously, <laughs> right, they can't all be right. Someone's contributing less than they think. Or you'll ask them, like, well, how much did the other people on the team contribute? And they'll always give a lower answer than, their, than what they thought they contributed. And even though it's called the egocentric bias, it isn't necessarily just about them thinking they're so hot. It's also just... That's what they can remember, right? It's harder for them to remember what other people did than for them to remember what they did. So it's a little bit of uh, availability heuristic again, right? I, I know what I did best. And so when I'm trying to remember who did what, I, the first thing that comes to mind is what I did. So that's kind of, kind of where that's coming from. It isn't purely about, you know ego, ironically, right? Um, so, uh, and it's funny too, because this is something that goes back to like childhood. Um, there's an experiment where you have a kid in a room and there's like uh, two boxes. So there's, there's a kid in the room and a stuffed animal in the room. And like, this is like a really young kid. And uh, you put an object in one of the boxes, right? In front of the kid and the stuffed animal. Uh, then you take the stuffed animal out of the room and then you move the object from one box to the other. And you ask the kid, hey, where should that stuffed animal look for that object? And the kid will almost always say, oh, in the new box, right? The box where it actually is, right? You know, not thinking that, hey, the stuffed animal wasn't in the room. It wouldn't know, right? Um, the basic kid basically assumes because I know where the animal is, the stuff, or, or I, I know where the object is, the, the stuffed animal is going to know as well. Like, it, he hasn't really formed a notion of that there is a world outside of himself or herself, like that the world is just like, you know, the way he or she sees it. In a weird way, there's a degree to which we don't grow out of that, <laughs> right? There's there's a degree to which we still think of, oh, well, if I think of it this way, everybody must think of it that way. Um, and for the kid, their excuse is they haven't completely formed the sense of theory of mind yet <laughs> to sort of understand, oh, not everyone sees the world the way I do. But it lingers beyond childhood. Um, and it cuts both ways, right? So it isn't just, hey, all the good stuff that happens is on me. It can be the bad stuff, too. So if you think of another kind of collaborative relationship, right, a marriage, um, there are these things where if you ask a couple, you know, um, different members of a couple, hey, how much do you contribute, you know, to this marriage? And you ask them about, like, good stuff, like, you know, keeping the house clean. Um, whether, you know, whichever spouse it is, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I do, like, more than 50% of that. I'm pretty, pretty instrumental in that. Or, 
um, being the cause of arguments, they'll take that on too, right? Even though it's a, a more negative thing, they'll be like, oh yeah, I kind of start most of the arguments, right? And again, they can't both be right about all of it, but that's, you know, that's what they remember. They remember their contribution to the thing. And so they think their contribution is the bigger one. So it isn't necessarily just about making yourself look good. It's just what can you remember and what, you know, what's tied to your sense of identity. So what's really interesting about this, so I'm going to give you a, a neat little variation. So there's a, um, a study where you basically uh, ask people about, you know, how fair is it to overpay yourself or to, or to be overpaid um, or to be underpaid? And you'll ask them, hey, is overpayment to you fair? And they'll generally say, yeah, I think it is. And then they'll point to some other people and say, well, is overpayment to these other people fair? And they'll be like, eh, I don't know about that. And the same thing for underpayment. You know, is it fair to underpay you? Oh, no, 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 you shouldn't underpay me. Was it okay to underpay these other people over here? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's all right. Yeah, like they're, they're, they, they will judge the underpayment to themselves as more, more of an offense. So the really weird thing with this is, um, and I'll try to find this and put the, I'll put the, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the particular study in the show notes for, on Facebook uh, so you can look it up. But um, if you put a mirror in front of them, and you ask that same question, their answers change. So if they can see themselves when they're answering the question, hey, is it cool to overpay you? Or hey, is it cool to underpay you? And then, hey, is it cool to overpay them or underpay them? Their answers change and it levels out. So that if they think it's fair to overpay them, they'll also think it's fair to overpay these other people. Or if they think it's unfair to underpay themselves, they'll also think it's unfair to underpay these other people, right? And there's this idea that self-awareness kind of short circuits a little bit of this egocentric bias. Because if you see yourself saying it, you sort of start to realize, oh, wait, I am an individual. <laughs> I am not the world, <laughs> right? There's, there's this weird uh, uh, impact of having self-awareness. And it's interesting, too, right? Because colloquially, we, we know this, this you know, persona of like the egocentric individual who's only ever thinking about himself and says these boisterous, terrible things. Um, uh, and we, we also associate with that with having no sense of self-awareness. Like if you could hear what you're saying right now, would you really say it, right? Like, or if, if you saw someone else saying those things, you'd think they were an asshole, right? So I think that colloquial kind of persona of the boisterous, you know, arrogant person who has no self-awareness kind of has its roots in science, right? That there is this notion of if you can't actually get someone to have some sense of self-awareness, they'll tamp that down. Um, it's really funny, though, to see that actually, actually play out. Um, Another uh, interesting variation on this is if you're bilingual. Apparently, when you're bilingual, you are less vulnerable to this particular bias. And again, it's this notion that being bilingual kind of forces you to study other cultures, pay attention to other people and the way other people think. Uh, because different languages really are different ways of thinking, um, different ways of sol solving the same kind of grammatical and communication problems. Um, that extra added layer, right, of um, being aware of other people and aware of other cultures can kind of short circuit some of the egocentric bias a bit. And so people who are bilingual tend to exhibit a little bit less of that bias. Um, another thing that can kind of tamp this down a bit is uh, relationships, right? So I told you before about spousal relationships where the um, one person thinks they're contributing more than the other for good or ill. Um, they looked at siblings for this and siblings who are ex ex exceptionally close to each other tend to exhibit this less. Um, like the average sibling might um, think that they contribute more to the family than their other siblings. But if you have situations where the siblings are particularly close to know each other really, really well, it tends to um, tamp that down a bit and you see a little bit less of that assumption that they're doing all the work. Um, 
So, so like I said, the, part of the reason this uh, bias persists is because it's a bit of a memory aid, right? It's a little bit easier to remember things when we're associated, the things that we're associated with. And this kind of works in the reverse, too. If I try to um, ask you to remember something like a set of numbers or, uh, you know, uh, different brands of cars, some kind of list of things or whatever it is I'm trying to get you to remember. If you can associate those things with yourself in some way, make them relevant to yourself while you're memorizing them in that moment, they call it encoding. When you're actually making those, you know, neural pathways to remember those things, um, you'll you'll remember them better, right? So identity, having your own identity associated with a thing is a really good memory aid. It's a phenomenon called the self-reference effect. So it makes sense then that the things, you're going to remember your own um, contributions to things or involvement in things better because while you were forming the memory of those things, the things that had to do with you particularly were sort of like starker memories, sharper memories. You were encoding those things like harder <laughs> than you were the other things that other people were doing. Um, and it's interesting too, because uh, you were talking about early childhood earlier, because your sense of, your sense of identity is less formed then, it's kind of harder for you to remember stuff that happened when you were really, really, really young because you didn't have that sense of self to attach those memories to quite just yet. It's one of the reasons it's hard to remember stuff that happened in your early childhood. And we talked about this a little last time with collectivist cultures and the actor-observer effect where it's seen less because collectivist cultures are better at looking at the whole than just the individual, than um, Western individualist cultures. And as a result, and, and, and not surprisingly, right, you also see this a, a, as far as the egocentric bias goes. Like you see it less in collectivist societies than you do in um, Western individualist ones because collectivist societies tend to practice humility more. They just tend to know it as a thing. I was talking to a uh, colleague the other day, um, and apparently during the World Cup, uh, the audience at the, um, for one of the, the Japanese audience in one of the games, like after the game was over, cleaned up around them. And like, other audiences were like, what, what are they doing? Like, we, we just leave. <laughs> we just leave the stadium. The, someone else will take care of the trash. Like, in the Japanese, you know, audience was like, nope, that's what we're going to do. We're going to clean it all up, and then we're going to leave. And it was like, no big deal to them. And uh, this friend was telling me that when he was in college, he visited Japan, and he um, saw a Japanese school where all the kids at a designated time at the end of the day would pick up, not just after themselves, but they would just clean the whole school. Everyone would get a section, and they would just clean the whole school. And so, like, imagine being trained from that early age to think about others right <laughs> and think about yourself as a part of a whole like it's our all everyone's responsibility to keep this school clean like what kind of impact do you think that's going to have on something like an egocentric bias right on this notion that well no everything is like me versus um no the world has an opinion too <laughs> like the world has a, a there are other people on the planet uh, along with me um but what this um what this can manifest itself as right when when it is in force is this related um, bias called the, uh, the false consensus effect. So this is that version of it where not only do I think I contribute more, but I also think that everybody else sees things the way I do. So you think that if you have a particular opinion on, you know, the color blue is the best color in the world, everybody else also thinks that. Most other people think that. It's a pretty common thing, even if it's not. Um, there's uh, an experiment called the sandwich board experiment where you... Um, have people on a college campus uh, and ask them to wear uh, a sandwich board, like this big sign on themselves, uh, and you know, walk around campus with it. So you ask them whether or not they'll do it, and some will say yes and some will say no. And the ones who say yes, you ask them, okay, well, how, how many other students do you think would also say yes? And they'll give a pretty high number, right? Um, 
And the same with the ones who say no. It's like, oh, you said no. How many other students do you think would also say no? And again, they'll say like the majority of students will say no. Because again, they think the way they think about it is the way most people think about it. Now, the actual number is about 50, 50-50. Like half of the people they asked would say, yeah, I'll wear the sandwich board. Half of the people said no. But when they asked how many other people would do it, the number was always over 50%. So we don't have an accurate view of what other people would do so we skew toward what we would do. Um, and this can, uh, this can impact things like how we predict voting outcomes, right? If you support Obama, then you think Obama's going to win. If you support Trump, you think Trump is going to win. If you support Hillary, you think Hillary's going to Like whoever it is you support, you tend to think they have an outsized chance of winning regardless of the actual, if you were to poll everybody, right, what the actual polling would, would, would suggest. Um, and... Uh, this is, you know, again, not necessarily intentional. It's not that you have such a big ego in terms of thinking you're so awesome that you think, well, everybody thinks the way I do because I'm so smart. Um, it is something that you actually can't incentivize your way out of. That's kind of the, 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 the reason people think it's, it's not just about um, arrogance. So there was a game show a while back, and the idea was you had to basically kind of predict the way the audience beforehand had voted on a series of questions, right? So the audience would get a bunch of questions beforehand, and then some of them would say yes, some of them would say no, and then you, as the contestant, would have to kind of figure out, okay, what do I think they uh, voted? How did they vote? Um, it's a little like Family Feud, but with, like, I guess, numbers instead of, like, lists. Anyway, it's all about how well can you predict what the outcome is. And the more, the closer you get to the actual accurate number, the more money you'll make, essentially. And um, so basically you're incentivized to not just think about what you think, but to try to predict what other people think. And people still would skew towards what they thought, right? Um, it made it very difficult to win the game. So basically it's another one of those biases where I can't pay you to not do it, right? That's how hard it is to shake it. Even if I give you money, you still won't do it. Or you'll still do it, I mean. <laughs> you'll, still, you'll still succumb to the bias. Now... The, uh, there's a, another bias that can very easily get confused with this one. It's called the self-serving bias. And that really is one where you take more credit for a thing, um, for success, uh, but you attribute failure to circumstance, right? So it's a little bit like the actor-observer bias um, uh, in, in that uh, you're thinking about circumstance when you think about yourself, but here it's only if you fail. So a good way to, to tell the difference between the two between egocentric bias and between self-serving bias is, let's say you get a bad grade on a test. If you're kind of succumbing to the self-serving bias, you'll say, oh, well, I got a bad grade because I have a bad teacher. Um, if it's the egocentric bias, that's more like saying, oh, I got a bad grade? Well, I bet everyone else got a bad grade too. So they're not opposites, they're just different. Um, and one final note about egocentric bias, um, too little Egocentric bias, like, isn't necessarily a good thing. So it's people who suffer from depression actually tend to have a good deal, exhibit a good deal less of the egocentric bias. In fact, that's kind of one of the things they notice, you know, consistently. So their predictions, you know, about other people's beliefs or whatever tend to skew more towards the norm, tend, tend to be more accurate. Tend to, they actually tend to be a better judge of does the rest of the world think exactly the way I do? And unfortunately, that's coupled with suffering from depression. So it's kind of a depressing fact in and of itself that you kind of have to be depressed in order to get an accurate view of the world. That maybe that's a bigger commentary than this podcast can handle. But that is something that they've noticed in people who suffer from depression is that they suffer less from the, uh, the egocentric bias.
Um, so a lot of stuff wrapped up in there. And again, only the beginning of our journey into how the way we view the world is wrapped up in all of these things that have nothing to do with reality. Um, so that was this week's installment of that. Um, for the Cognitive Bias Podcast, I'm David Dolan Thomas, and we will see you next time.